1: Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome back to The Breakdown, an everyday
0: analysis breaking down the most important stories in Bitcoin, crypto, and beyond with your host,
1: NLW. The Breakdown is distributed by Coindesk. Welcome back to The Breakdown. It is Friday, March 6th, and today we have a very special episode. So for a little bit of context, I want to go back to February 17th. That was the point at which most people in America were not paying attention to the coronavirus yet, but it had become a huge emergency in China already. On that day, China's English-language newspaper, The Global Times, reported that authorities in the province where the coronavirus epicenter of Wuhan was located, had launched a very extensive search of fever patients. They were using financial transaction information about people who had bought fever and cough medicine since a month earlier, January 20th, to go look for and find people who had symptoms of coronavirus. Now, I tweeted that day, When someone tells you that only criminals should care about financial privacy or says something like, I have nothing to hide, send them this. Privacy is the topic of our conversation today, and I am joined by an illustrious guest in that context, Ricardo Spagni. Many of you know Ricardo better as his online avatar, Fluffy Pony. Many of you know him as the former lead maintainer of Monero, which is a privacy-centric cryptocurrency. Some of you know him as the co-founder of Tari, which is a new digital asset platform. But whatever the case, however you know Ricardo, what everyone knows about him is that he is an extremely poignant observer of privacy in the larger global context. In our conversation today, we really take a look across the globe at the state of privacy in the context of a number of issues that have come up over the last month. Some of them are specific to cryptocurrencies. We touch on the rise of central bank digital currencies and what they might mean for privacy and surveillance. We touch on a case of a developer of a popular wallet app, DropBit, Who was recently arrested and accused of money laundering having to do with Bitcoin mixing from a few years ago? Most of our conversation, however, focuses on the larger global context for privacy. In that light, we talk about the attack on encryption from the powers that be in places like the United States. We discuss what the response to coronavirus might mean for privacy and how it could, in fact, not do what I was suggesting in the sense of warning people about what surveillance can do, even if they're normal law-abiding people, but in fact have the opposite impact where China ends up looking like a paragon of response as compared to the United States. Finally, we talk about what it will take for citizens to actually care about their own privacy and why the apathy of regular people might in fact be the greatest threat to privacy in the world. Now, if this sounds bleak, fear not. Ricardo actually has a really interesting point for optimism that we get in towards the end. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation. I know for me, it's one of the most important that we can be having over and over again. One last note, I wanted this interview to be as raw and as much like the conversation as possible. So it is much more lightly edited than our normal episodes. So without any further ado, let's dive in. All right, we are here with Ricardo, the man, the myth, the legend himself. Hey, thank you so much for spending some time today.
0: And thanks very much
1: for having me. Okay, so uh, as we were just talking about, you know, the the provenance of this conversation was a comment around an article uh, on basically around Bitcoin mixing and uh, and whether there were implications for developers of privacy technology and what I actually want to do in this conversation is maybe zoom out and get your take on kind of the state of privacy across a couple different dimensions uh, but maybe let's start with where we actually started in that that conversation so basically you had uh, a few weeks ago Larry Harmon who is the CEO of Coin Ninja which most people know through Dropbit was arrested on. Money laundering charges that had to do with uh, his participation in uh, Alphabet and uh, and, and, uh, and a Bitcoin mixing software a few years ago, and one of the strands, one of the narratives after, was that based on people's reading of uh, of some of the actual formal statements from authorities, that maybe they were interested in um, in developers of privacy technology. And your point was that that's not how you read it at all, that this was a specific case where there was much more going on than someone just building on uh, building a privacy technology. So uh, I guess maybe let's get your take on that specific situation first.
0: Sure. Um, you know, I, I think it's uh, the, the problem with a lot of this stuff is like, I'm not a lawyer, and most of the people commenting on these things are not lawyers um and and so that can often lead to um uh, you know really weird interpretations um and mm-hmm. I, I think the point that i the point that i made there was if if um regulators were so anti-privacy like if privacy was just a thing that they bucked against with every fiber of their being we would see evidence of it um in in uh, other ways we would see for example Tour developers getting arrested. Um, we would see all sorts of uh, like all sorts of evidence of like a, a very strong anti privacy stance, and we haven't seen that. Um, so sure, privacy coins or, or privacy enhancing cryptocurrencies are maybe uh, a bit of a new uh, world. You know, it's something that that regulators have not previously been. Um, I have had to think about, but certainly when it comes to, uh, things like even WhatsApp and Signal and, um, and obviously Tor, um, and ITP and FreeNet, there have been all sorts of horrendous things, um, uh, that have been, uh, stored on them and published on them. So you know, if regulators were going to take like a very strong um anti-privacy stance i really believe we would have seen evidence of
1: that already i think this is a good point and something that's important you know one of the one of the temptations i think when there are legitimate concerns about a regulatory response or a potential regulatory response in the future is that just the natural social media cycle amplifies it. So we focus on boogeymen that aren't there when there are actually plenty of good things to talk about that are right in front of us. So um, by way of of extending this conversation, we have seen where... in some ways, it feels like when we talk about uh, you know, implications around uh, privacy technology or new privacy technology in the, in the firm of like privacy-preserving coins, w- there are actually, in fact, things that are happening already in terms of encryption, it seems. That's, to me, looking at the US at least, that's where a lot of these battle lines are is whether technology companies that exist right now that have nothing to do with cryptocurrencies per se are going to be able to uh, extend and continue with end-to-end encryption.
0: Yeah, and and I think that that to me is a much bigger battlefield. Um, in fact, it's a battlefield where we've already fought and, and largely lost in Australia, um, where regulators in Australia have made a case for backdoored encryption, um, a strong case, and other regulators have bought into that. So you know, I I think that that's that you you want to pick a fight and you want to you want to pick a side. I think fighting against so-called responsible encryption um is is a fight worth fighting um and privacy coins i do not think even feature on the radar of um of those regulators they're too busy fighting um things that they view as more insidious uh you know whatsapp used by terrorists um and as if and uh, and you know like what are we going to do force everyone to to forget that encryption exists it's not even feasible
1: Yeah, I mean that's that's the interesting thing to me is I I guess you know what is your take if you have one right now on the state of that battle? Uh, I mean, I guess in the U.S. specifically is the context that I'm looking at. You know, the Electronic uh, Frontier Foundation published um, another kind of warning signal a couple days ago about the Graham Blumenthal bill, which they call a a new path for the Department of Justice to finally break encryption, Um, and it's all it's all kind of part of this same uh, this same trend where. Particularly Attorney General Barr's office has been holding up crime as a mechanism to try to get this objective, which it seems is, I think, pretty uh bipartisan for, for many years to have these back doors.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's the, I I I feel like a lot of it is just a basic misunderstanding of the consequences of um of of doing something like that. So the argument that I've made to people um, in in discussions is if you had to ban um, encryption, what would you imagine is the logical consequence? Does encryption disappear? Um, You know, when I say encryption, I mean encryption that isn't backdoored. So you add these magical backdoors and then you ban um, all other forms of encryption. And then, you know, you basically just end up with a scenario where um, uh, criminals and, terrorists and, you know, people with uh, that are trying to serve nefarious ends, they're just going to use strong encryption anyway. Because, again, the math behind it doesn't disappear. The pieces of software that have been written thus far do not magically disappear. So um, in, in view of all that, basically all you're doing is you're saying ordinary people who might want to use encryption for totally normal reasons, um, like maybe they don't want uh, their boss to know, like every message that they send, maybe they don't want their email being read by their ISP. Um, totally normal things are now viewed as problematic. Because of course, why would you want that? You know, you, you must be um, evil, you must be wanting to do something bad
1: yeah well, this is the this is the classic argument of uh, you know uh, we only need privacy. Uh, if if, only criminals need privacy, right? Only people who are doing bad things need privacy. I don't have anything to hide. Um, I was thinking about this argument recently when, uh, in the context of coronavirus, you started to see these tracking tools where governments were making, um, were actually making visible people who had purchased flu-like uh flu-like medicines, right, at 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 pharmacies um in the context of the outbreak. And this was a, this uh, seemed to me to be this interesting moment of uh of seeing I guess what what might happen in the in the world where there's a context all of a sudden for someone to care about what even regular people are doing, you know, with their money, with their time, with their communications.
0: Yeah, and I think um someone pointed out the other day um that China's response to to corona has been really, um, in some ways, amazing because they have just this incredible um, uh, access to information, which is totally dystopian and not something that that I think any of us find at all appealing. Um, And yet their ability to rapidly respond to evolving scenarios um, is definitely something that, uh, that weighs in their favor. Um, at the same time, I, you know, hard pass, um, I'll live with my non-dystopian future, um, where, where they don't exercise as much control. Um, but it is interesting, um, to, to, to see. Uh, and I think that, you know, I think that we are, we're, we're at a sort of weird space where, um, in in time where people are torn at least western civilization not not so much um uh, in the east but where people are torn between want between still believing that the government is looking out in your best interest for your best interests and you know absolutely incapable of doing um any wrong and at the same time sort of you know realizing that maybe that's not the case and they're starting to distrust governments Um, And so then they're torn. I mean, you know, you you need like in most in most countries, you need the government to look after you and help you in situations like this. Uh, You don't have much choice. Um, At the same time, if there's a general distrust of the government, that's just not a great position to be in.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's really fascinating. I think in some ways to look at this coronavirus response and uh, and and weigh what it might do in terms of the public conversation about privacy, because I, I do think that there's a couple dimensions of this. You know, we kind of started with what regulators are thinking about privacy, technology, and what their various motivations are, but then there's this other side, which is to what extent citizens care. And another classic, almost cliche at this point, is that people don't care enough about their privacy to agitate for it because of that we're just the frogs boiling in the pot and maybe we're already uh, cooked you know and we don't even know it but one of the one of the weird things that could happen is if you do see a, a kind of large-scale epidemic in the US and a real public health crisis um, especially with how it's been handled people might actually look over at, at China uh, and say hey well maybe they have something right you know so it could actually have the the reverse impact that I first had when I saw that people were being posted for having gone to their equivalent of Walgreens, right? And that's, that's the frightening thing, right? Um, so someone, some, I mean,
0: a, a thing that people have asked me over the years um, from 2014 onwards is, um, what do I think is the biggest risk to Monero um, surviving a decade or two? And my answer has always been and remains um, apathy that people ultimately might not care enough about privacy. And if that's true for Monero, it's certainly true for everything, um, that people might just feel apathetic towards privacy. And you can see that in their choice of devices, um, that they're putting, you know, Alexa and Hey Google in their house. And they're just not really giving much thought to whether, you know, that's being listened to um on the other end or anything like that. And where it becomes really frightening um is I've got a friend who has uh he's probably got like you know four or five Alexa devices in various rooms. And um oh not, sorry not Alexa uh, the, the little Google home pod, whatever they're called, you know. And uh mm-hmm. the, the other day we we're talking and he's like, man, I swear Google's listening into me because I was talking with my wife about whatever, about getting diapers, and then Google was serving me ads for diapers. Now, of course, like, I know, there's a bunch of research in this area. And most of the time, um, it's, you know, if you actually look at the person's browsing history, they actually did look for diapers two days ago, and they forgot that they looked at it on some other site. And then Google's remarketing and, and super cookie stuff picks up the fact that you were on this website looking at that page, and now they know what to serve you. Um, but of course, in his mind, no, Google must be listening, and yet he won't get rid of the devices. Like total paranoid overreaction, he still won't get rid of them. And so that is the level of of um, apathy towards privacy that that we have reached. It's literally 1984, But instead of the government going and sticking microphones anywhere, we've gone and stuck them everywhere.
1: Well, this is the fascinating thing and how this played out different than 1984 in some ways is that these, these tools came in through the Trojan horse of convenience, right? Yep. And that instead of it just being this this horror state, it's, uh, it's this unbelievable deliver you anything you want, whether it's information or actual products uh, state, you know? And so it's kind of like, there's also a trade-off element of people being paranoid, but saying, well, what can I do? I guess it's worth it at least or something like that.
0: Yeah, and that's I think that's really the um, you know, the the problem is that these some of these arguments, like the nothing to hide argument, have been made uh in a very public way. And um and so people go, oh, well, I have nothing to hide, and so therefore. Um, and and the reality is that it's of course more nuanced than that, because it's true you you probably most people might be law-abiding citizens and have nothing to hide. But what law and whose law and and when the law arbitrarily changes and you don't know about it um, and now you're contravening it and there's evidence of it floating around, not only for law enforcement to see, but for your neighbors or your boss to see, then it becomes problematic. And so and I've, I've always struggled and I still struggle to find ways of explaining this to people so that they understand exactly how dangerous the, the situation is. And um, an illustration that I've used recently is um, to, to explain to people is what if you made a donation to doesn't matter can be to to really, go, you know, save the dogs foundation, um, you know, Planned Parenthood. It could be to a political party, whatever. And uh, your boss found out about that donation and he does not share your views. And because of it, he either makes your life really difficult or he fires you um that is a privacy leak um you're not going around bragging about the donation you made at least i hope most people don't but because of a lack of privacy you know your name got stuck on a website somewhere um and and people do this all the time right they they um back things not on kickstarter but on some of the other um uh, things to back uh sort of more donation or, or non-profit um, initiatives and then when they get to the screen that says display my name on the website or on the on the campaign, they go, yes, yes, please, I, I want my name on there. And then they don't think the f- about the fact that that's going to be cataloged somewhere that um, any 13-year-old with Google can go and find, you know, things that they've donated money to and make judgment calls about them. And that is just open, like, in-the-air stuff, um, what we call OSINT, Open Source Intelligence, Um, You know, not even like stuff that law enforcement has access to. And yet people keep doing this over and over again without thinking through the consequences of these actions, without thinking about the very real issues that it can create in their life, not because they are doing anything bad, they're doing something good, they're giving money to, to someone to help them, to an organization to help them, but that other people might disagree with those choices.
1: It's a really interesting hypothetical because I think you know this is something that I share. Uh, you know, where you started with the with this um, line of thought was had to do with kind of places where uh, where the law might just be wrong, right? Where uh, doing something out of sync with the law is again or nothing to hide isn't just a matter of you know your browsing history or, or something like that, but actually could have major implications because you live in a more authoritarian state, and obviously uh, a big portion of the world. Uh, there's a big portion of the world for whom that is the normal state of things. And it's much harder if you've grown up in, uh, you know, uh, pro markets, uh, liberal kind of, uh, you know, systems to understand that. And so I struggle with that analogy as well, but the hypothetical that you're posing, I think is a lot more, um, realistic for a lot of these folks. And I think it might be particularly acute now, you know, we're having a, obviously a much, uh, greater polarization in America. politics, at least than we've seen before, that extends from the ballot box and political issues to actual identity issues in a whole different way, right? You have uh, a very strong kind of cancel culture on on really every side, even though different sides call it, where you are either in and you think the same things or you're out because you you don't. You have a heretical point of view. Well, obviously people are complex and they may find, or most people I think probably have some heretical view that is just a little outside of the orthodox of whatever group they're around, right? So maybe it's in the South and you are supporting Planned Parenthood, right? Maybe it's you're in the North and you are supporting a pro-life group, right? Maybe it's somewhere else and you have an anti-vax position or whatever, right? Whatever the context is, if you have a heretical point of view and that can be made public, there could be serious social ramifications to say nothing of, to your point, uh, if your boss finds out and just doesn't really like it and uses it as a pretense. So I think it's a really interesting hypothetical that maybe gets a little bit closer to the lived experience of people rather than forcing them to empathize with a, a, a type of Experience that they haven't had
0: yeah and i mean it's um good because that's that's really the issue right is oftentimes when we're trying to convey how problematic this is we use weird um analogies or hypotheticals like oh what if you lived in thailand and it was illegal to throw bubble gum onto the street and then you did that and you were arrested and people are like what so you know i i, I try to find ways of um of of really empathizing with people, uh, with the fact that this is a super weird um, thing to think about, um, and and hopefully you know that helps them really come to terms with uh, with how um, how important it is to grab hold of your privacy and really protect it, really shield it.
1: So I've just a couple more questions for you. And so picking up on that thread, um have you been watching the conversation around Clearview AI at all? And and if so, do you think that there's um any potential that that uh that that company in particular freaks out people sufficiently to start paying attention or is it likely to be just another thing that kind of doesn't register on most people's radars?
0: You know, I I think um so, so I, I guess to some degree, it's a little bit like um, like China, right? Where they ha- they are so far um, advanced when it comes to uh, stuff like this. When it comes to facial recognition, um, and and pumping that into um, into systems that uh, you know that are centralized that give give access give them access to all sorts of um, information on people. Um, and and at the beginning, that certainly, I'm sure the argument was, like, look at all the good that this does. Um, but now, over time, people are starting to realize how incredibly dangerous it is, and how incredibly dangerous it has become. Um, and so, why have they realized it? They've realized it because of stuff like the social credit score. Um, you know, the fact that something that they that they did three years ago now suddenly turns around and bites them um and and they never maybe expected that before they certainly shouldn't have expected that um and so i think that to to a large degree uh we're going to see the same right um stuff like clearview uh certainly really powerful um uh software and and a really powerful system um and uh, and absolutely i have no problem with law enforcement um advocating for stuff like this um but it is going to eventually become a cat and mouse game, like most technology does, right? It will, will, uh, the stuff like this is quite invasive. Um, if you think about, and uh, back in the day when the internet was new and young, and privacy was kind of the last thing on anyone's mind, um, there was no, there were no VPNs. You know, there was no need to hide your IP address or concern about you know browsing habits or anything like that. Over time, it became an issue, um, and uh, and so now you sort of you know fast forward um, to today where VPNs are not uncommon, and um, and you know even people who aren't particularly obsessed with privacy will use a VPN because they understand the risks, the security and privacy risks of using um, the internet at like a coffee shop, um, and so I think to some degree. That's because of shared experiences, because of what they've seen on the news and so on. So stuff like Clearview, great, fantastic. Um, But eventually, people are going to start using technology to counteract it, whether it is, um, you know, walking around with face masks on or whatever it is, they're going to start really, um, you know, people will start rocking the boat. And of course, those early adopters of um, anti-facial recognition technology will be people who are a little bit paranoid uh, and so on. Um, but it trickles down just like VPNs have trickled down, just like internet encryption in messaging has trickled down to WhatsApp. Okay. Yeah. I mean, WhatsApp's another conversation, but still the fact that, that this technology trickles down, I think is a, it, it gives me hope for, uh, the ability for people to reclaim their privacy, despite the existence of, um, of systems like Clearview.
1: I think that's a great point that part of the answer might not even be just a, a mass shift in consciousness but giving people tools that are just as good just as convenient that have this built in so that making a shift isn't disruptive to to their the, the way that they operate in any day um, well I've, I've kept you for longer than i intended to because uh, I think this is such an important conversation i have just one more you know i, I think i share your sense that uh, obviously this the conversation about privacy is much larger than and uh, crypto and digital currencies. However, I do think there's one um, one sort of part of this industry that I'm watching with particular regard to privacy. This year is the emergence of central bank digital currencies and what that might mean for uh, for kind of this larger battle of privacy versus surveillance. So I, I wonder if you are spending any time thinking about the implications of a Libra, or, or more likely the implications of you know DSEP or a Chinese digital yuan or a you know a digital dollar and and what that. Might might do for this whole conversation with regards specifically to people's financial privacy.
0: Yeah. Um, so, so CBDCs are, are, again, you know, there's, there's definitely some level of like, Oh wow. That's kind of interesting um, going on in my head. Um, not so much from a, a um, a sort of anti censorship or censorship resistance perspective, but just from a making, Digital currencies the norm, um, and, and I think that that sort of paves the way for um, Bitcoin and, of course, other currencies like Monero that, that offer something slightly different um, to, to be more widely accepted. Um, I would be very, 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 very surprised if, uh, you know, any CBDC or any sort of basket-based centralized currency like, um, uh, like Libra um, has any meaningful privacy. You know I mean? They, if you look at the backlash that Facebook, um, had from regulators, um, it is clear that regulators do not want that to be a thing. Um, and I think that that, that's what we're going to see.
1: I tend to agree or actually producing, uh, a big uh, podcast series around the idea of, uh, of this battle for the future of money and certainly going back and looking at the immediate regulatory response to Libra, um, you know, the 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 privacy issue and the unwillingness to trust Facebook is right at the center of it. Uh, well, listen, I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I think this is a, a, such an important set of conversations for right now with some interesting new context over the last few weeks. So, uh, Ricardo, thank you so much and uh, really appreciate you. Thanks so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. I think for me, the most optimistic takeaway from this conversation is Ricardo's sense that there is this set of technologies that are becoming mainstream, even though they don't seem to be dominating news cycles. So VPNs have become something that even normal non-paranoid people use. Face masks are becoming something that is more common and certainly could be accelerated by issues like the coronavirus. The idea that perhaps the technologies to prevent privacy loss could become as convenient as the technologies that destroy and threaten our privacy is something that is worth holding on to. That's going to do it for this week of episodes of The Breakdown. Next week, we have an even more interview-packed week with some really interesting people looking at a huge array of global issues from the crypto industry and beyond. I hope you're heading off to a great weekend wherever you are, and I hope that you stay safe doing it. Until next week, peace.